0: there are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a rundown of the words of the year in a meaty middle about how you can become a better writer in 2017. And now let's get on to the words of the year. Online dictionaries aren't just convenient. They give the people who run the dictionary sites a view into the zeitgeist in a way that was never possible when people looked up words in physical books. Lexicographers see data about what visitors are looking up, and naming words of the year based on search spikes or overall increases in search volume for particular words has become a tradition. This year, it's pretty clear that political news and events were driving searches. Merriam-Webster's word of the year for 2016 was surreal, which the lexicographers had spiked after the terror attack in Brussels in March, again in July related to a coup attempt in Turkey and a terror attack in Nice, and finally again in November after the U.S. presidential election. Their definition of surreal is, quote, marked by the intense, irrational reality of a dream, unquote. Highlighting the influence of U.S. politics, other top Merriam-Webster searches in 2016 were bigly, which is a word but a rarely used word, deplorable, and feckless, which Mike Pence used in a vice presidential debate. Dictionary.com also cited search spikes caused by global political events as the reason for choosing its word of the year, xenophobia which their dictionary defines as, quote, fear or hatred of foreigners, people from different cultures, or strangers, unquote. They report they saw a 938% increase in lookups for the word xenophobia the day after the UK voted to leave the European Union, and a smaller spike immediately after the US presidential election. And the lexicographers noted that they already had their eye on xenophobia before 2016, because it also had a huge spike in 2015 after attacks on foreigners in South Africa. Other words they highlighted as showing large search spikes in 2016 were hate crime and populism. The Oxford Dictionary's word of the year for 2016 was post-truth which they define as, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief, unquote. According to Oxford dictionaries, they saw large increases in searches for post-truth, quote, in the context of the Brexit referendum in the UK and the presidential election in the US, unquote. There's a pretty dramatic chart on the Oxford Dictionary's website showing the increase in search volume, and I'll link to that in the transcript of this podcast at QuakeAndDirtyTips.com so you can see it. Some of the other Oxford Dictionary candidates included political terms such as Brexiteer, alt-right, and woke, and non-political words such as chatbot, and one of my favorites that you may remember me talking about in previous years, adulting. Collins Dictionary chose Brexit as its word of the year for 2016. They first saw people using Brexit in 2013, but saw a 3,400% increase in searches in 2016. Now, I'm sure Math Dude would tell you that if you start from a small number, as you would for a new word, a 3,400% increase may not be that big in raw numbers, but will give them the benefit of the doubt that the search volume made it a worthy choice. Other candidates on the Collins list included Trumpism, Mic Drop, Snowflake Generation, Uberization, referring to the ride-hailing company Uber in their business model, and JOMO, which means the joy of missing out and is presumably a reaction to FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. They also included the Danish word hygge, which means, quote, the practice of creating cozy and congenial environments that promote emotional well-being, unquote. Oxford Dictionaries actually included hygge, too, and their definition notes that it's regarded as a defining characteristic of Danish culture. It's hard for me to pronounce, but it's a nice word, and there don't seem to be that many of those this year, so let's say it again. Hygge. H-Y-G-G-E. Those are the major dictionary words of the year, based at least loosely on search volume. But just a few days ago, the American Dialect Society also chose its words of the year, which are based on votes at the group's annual meeting, and you can see how it all unfolded by searching Twitter for the WOTY16 hashtag, because multiple people were live-tweeting from the meeting. The American Dialect Society word of the year was Dumpster Fire, to mean, quote, an exceedingly disastrous or chaotic situation, unquote. And I always find the American Dialect Society choices to be the most interesting, because they have categories, and they even pick an emoji of the year. For example, the emoji of the year was the flame, and then they also included the emoji representation of dumpster fire as part of the dumpster fire choice for word of the year. The emoji is a combination of a wastebasket emoji and the flame emoji, presumably because there is no dumpster emoji. An interesting aside about the word dumpster is that it was originally a trademarked term and was capitalized. A company called Dempster Brothers trademarked their Dempster Dumpster in the 1930s, but it's become such a generally used word that it's now common to see it lowercase. AP style for dumpster is lowercase, but the New York Times appears to continue to capitalize dumpster. Now, you may be wondering how two words, dumpster fire, can be the word of the year, which seems like it should be a single word. But the American Dialect Society press release explained that, quote, the word of the year is interpreted in its broader sense as a vocabulary item, not just words, but phrases, unquote. And I presume that the Collins Dictionary used the same rationale for snowflake generation and mic drop. Looking at some of their categories, the digital word of the year was the at symbol used as a verb, as in, don't at me. Woke was their slang word of the year, and gaslight was their most useful word of the year. And I've actually been meaning to write about the verb gaslight for a couple of months because I kept seeing it on Twitter and could not figure out where it came from, and it turns out the story is really interesting. I had looked up a bunch of background but never got around to actually writing it up. So, gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation where an abuser makes people doubt their sanity by denying that something that happened really happened. For example, a boyfriend might promise to pick up his girlfriend from work, not show up, and then swear that he never made the promise and that she's the ditzy one. The gaslighter will do things like this over and over with such brazen confidence that the girlfriend really does start to wonder if it's her. But why would this be called gaslighting? It turns out it comes from a 1944 Ingrid Bergman movie called Gaslight, which was based on a popular play called Angel Street when it ran on Broadway, in which a manipulative husband who has murdered their wealthy upstairs neighbor causes the gas lamps in the house to dim while he's repeatedly searching for the missing woman's jewels. And then he tries to convince his wife that it isn't happening, that she isn't seeing the lamps dim before her very eyes and that she's going insane. So that was our wonderful year in words, according to lexicographers and linguists, and all of you who search for words in online dictionaries. I'm going to try to take a deep breath and focus on ya. And now, on to tips for becoming a better writer. New Year's resolutions aren't always easy to keep. When you try to change a personal habit, it can be hard to stay motivated. But what if instead you resolved to make yourself a better student or employee by improving your writing skills? It's a positive goal, and you can achieve it without drastic changes to your daily life. To get started on this resolution, here are four tips First, find a peer editing buddy. You may have a friend who has the same major as you works in the same department, or just has a similar interest in improving his or her writing. Reading each other's work can help you both in a variety of ways. First, it's always beneficial to have an extra set of eyes on your work to catch mistakes, both large and small. Even the greatest writers need editors. Second, knowing you're going to get your friend's input should be motivation to get your first draft done earlier and to work a little harder on it. It's like having a workout buddy. You can help keep each other accountable. Second, read a style guide. Yes, this may seem kind of boring, but devoting the short amount of time it will take to read a time-tested guide will pay off. Garner's Modern English Usage, for example, has more than 900 pages that cover almost every topic you can imagine. If that seems too daunting, you could try one of the thinnest of tomes, my Grammar Girl's 101 Misused Words You'll Never Confuse Again. It covers only the most common errors, and at one tip a day you'd be through it by tax time. Popular books can also be informative as well as entertaining. Woe is I, The Elephants of Style, and Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing all mix humor with writing advice. In addition, if you're in a profession that involves writing in a certain style for academic or professional purposes, say AP style for journalists, Chicago style for book writers, or APA style for social scientists, you may want to add those style guides to your reading list. Put a book on your nightstand or an ebook or audiobook on your phone and go through one book entry or one page each day. It takes almost no time at all. Third, write for fun. No, seriously, there are people who love to write, but many people only do it when they have to. When the only practice you get at a skill is when you're under deadline pressure, you may not be doing your best work or enjoying it. So think about something you might actually want to write. Maybe you have a hobby you could blog about, or you enjoy writing online reviews of places you visited. Even if it's for no one's eyes except yours, that's okay the point is just to get the words flowing. The act of writing for pleasure is different from writing for a school assignment or for work, but it's still something you can use to improve your skills and feel more comfortable with the process. If you're stumped as to what topics you'd like to write about for fun, try using a writing prompt. And there's a link to a big list of places to get writing prompts on the transcript of this segment at quickanddirtytips.com. Finally, identify a specific area of your writing you'd like to improve, then challenge yourself to find as many improvements in that area as possible and put a post-it note on your computer or desk to remind yourself of the goal. Say you tend to be unnecessarily wordy. Once you've written a first draft, challenge yourself to go through and reduce your overall word count by 5% by streamlining your language. Or, if you tend to repeat certain phrases or words, challenge yourself to replace each repeated use with a different variation. A thesaurus can be your best friend for exercises such as these, but just don't go overboard subbing in words that are too out of the ordinary. If you implement even a couple of these four suggestions, you can be almost assured that your writing will improve with just a few minutes of extra effort each week. That segment was written by Laura Wegman, who's a contributing writer for Varsity Tutors, a live learning platform that connects students with personalized instruction to accelerate academic achievement. And I'm Anyon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. The ebook version of my book, The Grammar Devotional, is on sale right now for just $2.99, and it's written in a tip-a-day format, so it'd be a great book to load on your phone so you can read a little bit here and there when you have spare moments like we just talked about. That's all. Thanks for listening.
0: Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and... People that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast In more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.